Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew. And uh, we're not just looking at Matthew 26 this morning. We're also going to be uh, looking quite a bit at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So find your way to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in addition to Matthew 26. Before we dive in, as it is our custom, it would be good for us this morning just to pause and ask for the Lord's help to open our eyes to see, to open our hearts to receive by faith those things which He's going to speak to us through His Word this morning. So uh, as you're making your way to uh, those two passages, I'm just going to pray and ask for God's help this morning. Lord, we ask that You would just open our eyes by Your Spirit just to receive with faith those things which, though clearly spoken, can only be truly truly understood and truly believed by the help, by your help, Lord. And so we ask that you would help us to believe, Father. This morning as we look specifically at Christ's response to Judas's betrayal with an act of sacrifice and with the symbol of communion, I pray, God, that the meaning of this symbol and the transformative effect it will have on our lives would be clearly understood. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would work in the hearts of your people to giving themselves to fellowship with you by your blood and ultimately to each other through communion. We pray that you would do this work by your spirit this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, I was on, getting on a plane to travel somewhere, and uh, because I was a late, a late booker, I had booked my seat late, I didn't get my choice of seats, and I ended up with the dreaded middle seat. You know what I mean. You don't have a window, and you don't have an aisle. You're stuck between two total strangers, and you're at their mercy if you need to go to the restroom or, or somebody has to climb over the top of you. And I thought, I'm just going to put on a brave face. I'm just going to go, and I'm just going to make the best of it. But it got even better. As I was making my way down the aisle of the aircraft with my toe-behind luggage, I observed sitting in the seat on the aisle, there was what I presumed to be a Buddhist monk. He was wrapped in the bright orange uh, outfit. His head was shaved totally, totally bald. And on the window seat was what I presumed to be somebody who had not left the 60s. It was an individual who was clearly a hippie. He had the bright tie-dye shirt, the rainbow colors, and uh, they were already engaged in a conversation which I was excited about, but not at all sure how I was going to jump into it. The Buddhist was sharing with the hippie, this is not a joke, I know it sounds like a joke, you know, one time on a plane, a Baptist, a Buddhist, and a hippie sat together. I know what you're thinking, but this is true, this actually happened. The, the hippie and the Buddhist are dialoguing, and the Buddhist is sharing with the hippie fellow about transcendental meditation. And the hippie fellow was saying, you know what would make that even better is if you did that with some marijuana. And he was promoting the use of cannabis. And, and so I stow my overhead luggage, and I sit down, and I sit in my seat, and I'm thinking, Lord, this is going to be really interesting how this next few minutes is going to go. And of course, they're, they're dialoguing back and forth, and I'm, you know, we're, we're all kind of buckling up in those really narrow seats that they put you in, and we're trying not to touch each other. And... Um, Eventually, the inevitable question comes, 
you know, first there's the preliminary introductions. You know, hi, my name is so-and-so. Who are you? Well, my name is such-and-such. Tell me, what do you do for a living? And in that moment, I knew that the Lord was going to do something through this conversation. Didn't know what, but I knew it was going to be interesting nonetheless. So I said, well, I'm a pastor. And then there's the uh, sort of long 30-second awkward silence. Oh, okay. And um, eventually, they resumed their conversation talking about those different practices that they engage in to alleviate stress and to reassure themselves that everything is going to be okay, whether it be the employment of marijuana or whether it be meditation. And they began to share and dialogue over their respective differences regarding their religious beliefs. At some point, the hippie turns to me and says, how about you, pastor? What do you do? Now, all kinds of answers come to mind in that moment. Prayer, scripture reading, being together with the Lord's people in his church. But in that moment, and I don't know why, in that moment, the word that came to me, just knee-jerk reaction was, I give myself to communion. I don't know why I said that. There are any number of different answers that would have been just exactly appropriate. But I said, I give myself to communion. Which prompted a dialogue. What do you mean you give yourself to communion? What do you mean by that? What is happening when you partake of communion? Now, I couldn't tell you why I gave that answer. I'm not sure why that was the thing that sprung off of my lips But in the years that have intervened between then and now, I am convinced that it was the right answer. You see, the discussion that was unfolding between these two individuals was on a ridiculous level. We're talking about eternal matters of the heart and soul that were being discussed as though these are simple preferences. Whether or not you like vanilla ice cream as opposed to chocolate ice cream. Whether or not your favorite color was blue as opposed to red. As though these spiritual practices that we're engaging in, be it the employment of cannabis or transcendental meditation, are simple matters of preference that they're all true in the sense that you have to find what works for you. And so when the question was posed, and I don't know why I said communion, but that was the answer that came out, I knew that there was going to be a conversation which would follow in which I would be charged before the Lord to speak on his behalf to say, at the end of the day, this is not a discussion about personal preference. You're not getting your druthers here. This is about what is true and what is false. Christ is true. And the communion of the saints is real. And the blessing that flows out of this fellowship and what happens around the Lord's table, that is the only thing that matters in the final analysis. Everything else that we can grab onto, every other thing that we can turn to is a lie. And so as, we, as I entered into this conversation with these two individuals, I want to be very careful to say what I'm talking about is not a matter of personal opinion or preference. It is true. And that conversation at its deepest level was spiritual warfare. Would we honor and recognize what was true or would we allow ourselves 
to, su- to think and to suggest to each other that it's all just a matter of personal preference. That conversation has a lot in common with what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 26. As we look at Matthew chapter 26, and as we look at what is unfolding between Judas and Jesus, the plans that Judas has to betray Jesus, the ultimate plans that Christ has to voluntarily go to the cross on our behalf, and his response to Judas's betrayal with the offering of communion, we find spiritual warfare at its deepest, darkest, and most sinister, We find grace being offered richly and freely, but we also find a decision. There's a confrontation that happens here where the individuals involved have to come to a final verdict. Will we do what is true or will we do what we prefer to do? That's what Jesus is getting at here. Look with me. These two guys, the, these, these 12 apostles, they get together. The passage talks about it. There's this account that happens. We preached on it a couple of weeks ago in which the expensive ointment, the jar of perfume was shattered. Jesus' body was anointed with it. Of course, right after that, the scriptures say that Judas from that point forward went out and he made plans in order to betray Jesus and he went to the chief priests in the temple and the Pharisees and he made plans with them that for 30 pieces of silver, he's going to betray Jesus. The Gospel of John records that this is also the same sequence of events that unfold in John chapter 12. John reports that Judas used to help himself to the money that was in the money bag and that as a result of that, when he saw this expensive, expensive $30,000 of perfume broken, he knew that he was going to be shortchanged. The only motivation that we really have from the scriptures is that as a result of his financial loss, Judas determines in that moment that he's going to betray Jesus. They come now to Passover. This is the 14th of Nisan, a date which is mandated in the scriptures, a particular day in which they are going to sacrifice the Passover lamb. They're going to reflect on the fact that salvation and deliverance always comes at the cost of bloodshed. The lamb symbolic of an innocent animal having to be given, an innocent life having to be given for our salvation. It is in the context of this meal that the treachery is unmasked that the opportunity for grace is given. It says in verse 17, on the day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us to go prepare the supper for you to eat the Passover? He said, verse 18, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. Jesus knows what is coming. It's very clear. The moment for which he is born has come. It is upon him. He knows it. Nothing is happening that Jesus is not fully aware of. He knows what's going to happen at dinner that night. He knows the conversation that's going to unfold between him and the disciples. And he makes the statement, this is the house where I want this to happen. This is the place where I want these events to unfold. You go to this guy, you say, we're coming to your house. We're going to have the Passover there tonight. My time is at hand. Jesus demonstrates from start to finish that he is totally sovereign over everything that is about to unfold. What comes next? Verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. It's interesting, the Jews from Galilee would have had a different, they had a different way of reckoning time than Jews from Jerusalem. There would have been anywhere from 300 300 to 600,000 people flowing through the temple compound on the 14th of Nisan. 
to slaughter lambs. The blood would have flown. The scriptures mandated that lambs had to be slaughtered at twilight, that period of time at sunset, and there would be no way to filter that many people through the temple compound to have these lambs properly slaughtered in that amount of time, which is good because they had a different way of reckoning the calendar. The Galilean Jews reckoned their days from sunset to sunset. The Jerusalem Jews reckoned their days from sunrise to sunrise, which means that for the Galilean Jews, their Passover fell on a Thursday, but for the Jerusalem Jews, the Passover fell on Friday, which is why we're able to say that Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples on Thursday, yet he himself was also crucified on the holy day of Passover. He meets with his disciples. They make the preparations. It's in the evening, Thursday evening. It says in verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. Judas is present. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is how convincing Judas is. When Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, not one of the twelve pointed at Judas and said, I always knew there was something weird about that guy. Not one of them pointed the finger and said, oh, it's that guy. They were so assured and so convinced of each other's loyalty, they had all walked away from different careers, different occupations. They had all left family behind. They had all put it on the altar. They had followed Jesus. He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And to a man, they had all done that. They had all gone on preaching assignments. They had all been witnesses to miracles. They had seen amazing things happen. They were convinced Not only if they were convincing each other, they were convinced of the master's judgment. So when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, they don't know who it is. They are so certain of everyone else that when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, the only logical conclusion is they're sitting here face to face with Christ is, it's got to be me. So they begin to ask him, is it me? Like, am I the one that's going to do this to you? One by one, they go around the room so utterly assured of everyone else's loyalty and faithfulness that they question themselves first before they question the guy sitting next to them. Jesus says to them, verse 23, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now he's about to institute communion in which a cup will be passed in which bread will be broken. But before he does that, he identifies his betrayer. As you read the gospel accounts on this, it's evident that at least a few of the disciples saw what Jesus was referring to, but not all of them. They didn't all see what was about to happen. But Jesus points out some of his closest. This is the person who's going to do it. And in the midst of all of them saying, it's not me, is it? Is it me? Am I the one that's going to do it? In the midst of all of them saying that, he hands a cup to Judas. And as Judas is dipping his bread in the cup, 
He's looking at Jesus along with everyone else saying, it's not me, is it? It's not me. But Judas knows it's him. He knows what he has just done. He knows the 30 pieces of silver that are jingling in his pocket. So when he says, it's not me, is it? Is it me? Jesus' response is, you said so. Now Judas has been attributed with a whole range of motivations for why he should do what he's about to do. People have said that Judas was misunderstood. People have said that Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand, that Judas knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but Jesus wasn't asserting his kingdom fast enough for Judas' purposes. All kinds of motivations, all kinds of reasons have been attributed for why Judas betrayed Jesus. At the end of the day, the only sort of guess we can make is that he was in it for the money, and he got shortchanged. And he was ticked off, so he was looking for a way to make up that financial difference. That's the best guess we can make. At the end of the day, Judas' approach to his relationship with Jesus is this. I'm going to do what's best for me. I'm going to do what benefits me. And if it should happen to cost you, oh well, so be it. Judas is looking out for number one, himself. It poses an interesting ethical dilemma for all of us. And see, this is the age-old conflict between good and evil. And all of us get dragged into this at some point in time or another. All of us are guilty at some point in time or another of doing something that we know harms another person, but we do so because it will benefit us. And even though we know it's wrong, we justify it put an interesting question to you. If you were on a boat with nine or 11 other guys in the middle of the ocean, stranded, say you're on a lifeboat, there's no power, there's no engine, you're stuck in the middle of the ocean. There's you and 10 or 11 other guys, and you're going to die in the middle of the ocean because there's no water to drink and there's no food to eat. Do you embrace death? Do you say, okay, it's, this is just the cards that we've been dealt and we're all going to die together, all 10, 11 of us? Or do you, at some point, start whispering with the guy next to you and start plotting if the 10 of us or the 9 of us or the 11 of us kill that one person we could eat him and survive a little longer. Interesting ethical dilemma, don't you think? Now, immediately you're, you're posed with this question. You're thinking, that's ludicrous. I would never do that. You may not, and I pray that you wouldn't. But if you were in that situation, you're being confronted with the classic battle between good and evil. Here's the deal, and you can justify it any number of different ways. You could say, We're all created in the image of God. Life is precious. Because life is precious, we need to do what we can to sustain life. And ultimately, ten living guys and one dead guy is better than 11 or 12 dead guys. Better for some of us to live than that all of us should die. You could justify it that way. We're all created in the image of God. We're all precious. So let's just draw straws and see who the unfortunate soul is that has to die in order for the rest of us to survive. 
Or you could look at it this way. We're all precious. We're all created in the image of God. All life is sacred and holy. Therefore, none of us have the right to kill or take the life of another, even if it does advantage us or benefit us in some way. The question could be reframed this way. Do you have ten noble dead heroes? Or do you have nine living cannibals? Which is better, ten dead heroes or nine cannibals? You know the Scripture's answer to that question? Ten dead heroes, ten dead heroes is always better than nine living cannibals. What is right and wrong never changes. And murder is universally prohibited in the Scriptures. And so, to harm another person for your own benefit, despite your circumstances, is always condemned by the Word of God. Judas's assessment here is, and he's not even in that kind of dire circumstances. He's not even in that kind of a difficult situation. But Judas's assessment is, there are these religious guys that are openly plotting about murdering Jesus. I just got shortchanged some money. I need that money. I need what will benefit me. And so I am going to help these religious guys get a hold of Jesus. It would appear that Judas is in control of the situation. But he's not. Look at what Jesus says. In verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Jesus is saying, I go no matter what. The Word of God has foretold this moment. Jesus is himself God. He knows what is about to happen, and he is very clear. No matter what happens tonight, I'm going to the cross. It's going to happen. No one forces me to do this. I go of my own accord. But woe to that man who betrays me. We have here the conflict between good and evil at its rawest, purest form. Judas is saying, you're only useful to me. Your purpose in my life, I only care about you to the extent that you will benefit me. And Jesus is saying, I go for all humanity. Judas is saying, I only care about you to the extent that you benefit me. And Jesus is saying, I care about all of you. I love all of you. And I give myself up for all mankind that all may be forgiven of their sins. Jesus is here to give for the sake of us all. Judas is here to take for himself. And that is the difference between utilitarianism, pragmatism, we're using people for our own purposes, versus do we truly love people the way that Christ did? Jesus is saying, I go of my own accord, but woe to that man. Now, Judas knows what he's about to do. And if you recall the plan that was hatched between him and the religious leaders, they did not want to do it during Passover. 
They said, let's wait until after the holidays, lest there be an uprising. They wanted the crowds in the city to dissipate. They wanted people to go back home to where they were from. They didn't want a popular uprising. They knew that Jesus was popular. Just the week before, he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and people are praising and shouting his name and worshiping him, and they're upset. They know he is well-liked, so they want to do this quietly. But Jesus is in control. And his statement to Judas is this. You're the one who's going to do this. Judas's question is, is it me? And he says, you have said so. Now Judas has already plotted with the Pharisees and the chief priests to wait until after Passover. But as soon as Jesus says to Judas, you're the guy, Judas knows He's going to have to accelerate his plans. Jesus unmasks Judas. He says, I know exactly what you're doing. And he gives him an invitation. He gives him an opportunity to participate in a new covenant. Judas is confronted with a decision. Betray Jesus or don't betray Jesus. Betray Jesus and woe to me, it would be better if I was never born or don't betray Jesus. There's an offer for something that is presented. From here, Jesus moves into communion. Look at what he says. As they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink, all of it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the, this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Coming face to face with betrayal, coming face to face with the cruelty of Judas, Jesus now offers communion. It's a symbol. It's a symbol that we observe here every month here at First Baptist, the second Sunday of every month. Now, I say it's a symbol because it's very clear as Jesus is enacting this rite, this ordinance among his disciples, that it is not literally his flesh and it is not literally his blood. Contrary to popular interpretation, Jesus is still alive sitting with them at the table. So when he holds up the cup and he says, this cup is my blood, or when he holds up the bread and he says, this bread is my flesh, he's still sitting right there. His flesh is still on his body. His blood is still inside of him. It's not literal, it's figurative, it's metaphorical. In this understanding, we say that communion is a symbol. But when I say that communion is a symbol, I don't want you to understand it as though it is just a symbol. It is true. Now, what we do when we partake of communion is symbolic. But to say that it is just symbolic, that there is no spiritual power in the act of communion, is a lie. When we get married, generally, we all put rings on our fingers, do we not? Now, the wearing of a ring, as any man who's been married for any length of time will tell you, shapes you. As any woman will tell you, it shapes you. I was married when I was 21 if you look at this hand, you probably can't see it from where you're sitting, most of you, but if you look at this hand, the ring finger is pretty fat at the bottom, okay? It is. But if you look at this hand, I don't know if you can see it, 
There is indelibly an impression on my ring finger, my wedding ring finger. You can see where there's a ring that's there. And if you were to compare these, if you were to come up after the worship service, I'll show you if you want. But if you come up afterwards, you'll see this ring finger is fat at the bottom, and this ring finger is thin at the bottom. See, when I got married when I was 21, my fingers were skinny. And I've been wearing the same ring finger for 15 years now. And as my fingers have gotten fatter as I've aged, this one hasn't because it's bound by a ring. Is my marriage just a matter of a gold band on my finger? No, absolutely not. Is the ring just a symbol of a decision that I've made? Yes, it absolutely is. But on a pure physical level, there's no denying that the embracing of the symbol has literally changed my body. It has altered me. It has shaped me. In the same way, the partaking of this symbol changes you. Number one, it changes you on a physical level. You have to be here the second Sunday of every month to partake of communion. Your presence and your time has to be planned in order to embrace the symbol. But on a whole other level, it's changing you spiritually. When I proposed to my wife, I knew that there was going to be a ring. I knew that the moment I said yes to Shanti, I was saying no to every other woman that would ever exist. I knew that the moment I gave my life to being married to her, I was in that same moment making a declaration to all the other ladies out there that I am no longer available. What if I were to say to my wife, I'll marry you, but I'm not going to wear a ring. I don't want people to know I'm married. Isn't that a romantic proposal? (laughs) Do you think she would say yes to that? Of course not. As I'm contemplating all of the ramifications of this decision, the choosing changes me. Did you guys hear that? The choosing changes me. The deciding divides me from another path, such that my heart and my soul and even, yes, my physical body are now going down one path where they could have gone down another path. To choose to marry Shanti comes with a symbol. The embrace of that symbol, the embrace of that marriage alters me spiritually. It just does. And in the same way, communion, the participating in this symbolic act, the choosing to do it, to give yourself to it, changes you. It absolutely does. There are all manner of things that we can pursue in this life to alleviate stress. We can try Eastern meditation. It's becoming increasingly popular in these days to turn to things like marijuana and other chemical stimulants to alleviate stress, to take the edge off, so to speak. Whether you try to empty your mind or whether you try to distort your perception of reality, whatever gimmick you turn to, whatever solution you reach for to try to make your situation better, the reality remains the same. Your situation is what it is. And the only thing that can save you, the only person who can save you is Jesus Christ. And the only hope you have both now and for eternity is what Jesus did for you on the cross. To embrace that, 
to choose that, to say yes to Jesus, will come with two acts. One of them will be done once in your life. And the other one will be done repeatedly, routinely, regularly, until the day you die. The first, obviously, is baptism. That initial decision, the commitment that you're making. We're going to be celebrating a baptism here in just a few weeks' time. Following that baptism is what Jesus gives us here in communion. Say, Pastor, what's happening in communion? I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. He's very clear that what is happening here is not an individual thing. It is a corporate thing. It is not isolated to you as a person. It is something that you participate in as a person along with all those around you, which means you have an individual responsibility and those around you also have an individual responsibility. All of us together have a commitment to celebrate this act, this symbol in a certain way. Look with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 3. Paul is telling the church at Corinth that they have unrepentant, an unrepentant person that is there, that is not committed to living his life for Christ. And he says, you need to remove that person from your church. And the justification he gives for it is communion. Notice what he says in verse 3. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in order that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Now everything he's about to say at this point has to do with Passover and it has to do with the practice of communion. Communion comes within the context of Passover. And one of the things that was clearly emphasized in the celebration of Passover, the Jews were required to go throughout their entire home and they were to sweep and clear away all of the leaven, all of the yeast that was in their home. They were to celebrate Passover with unleavened bread. And the symbol of this was that leaven represented sin. And any amount of sin in your life would corrupt your life. It would take you over. And so the practice of Passover was symbolic of receiving God's salvation through what God has done, but it was to be met by a heart that was prepared to sweep away sin, that is, to repent. That's what Paul is alluding to here. He makes the statement in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's statement here in 1 Corinthians is that as we practice communion as a church, we step away from our old life, we continuously walk in the new life that Christ has purchased for us. It's not that we're perfect when we partake of communion, 
The scriptures are clear. None of us will be perfect this side of heaven. But it does mean that none of us are living in blatant, unrepentant sin. It does mean that none of us are willfully engaging in disobedience. Now, I've heard so many sermons over the course of the years in which people have said that Judas was not present for this communion, that when Jesus did the first communion, when he instituted the Lord's table, that Judas wasn't there. The primary reason for that is because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is explicitly clear, we are to maintain a pure church as pure as possible. That is not to say that we will be sinless or perfect, but that we will knowingly remove from our fellowship any individuals who are willfully unrepentant and blatantly engaging in sin, that these individuals are not permitted to partake of communion, that communion is a holy act, that it is a pure act. We get that. Paul teaches that. That is explicitly taught in 1 Corinthians. Now, with that understanding, sometimes we make the assumption as a result that when Jesus is confronting Judas in the upper room on the night that he is to be betrayed and he institutes the Lord's Supper, that Judas was not present, that Judas had already left. But it just won't hold up to the scriptures. In Luke, don't flip there, just listen. In Luke chapter 22, verses 20 to 23, the Luke account of Passover. It says, Likewise, the cup after they had eaten the bread, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Did you notice the expression? In the midst of the cup, in the midst of holding forth communion, in the midst of offering the cup of the new covenant, the cup of Christ's blood, in the midst of that, Jesus says, Behold, the man who is going to betray me, his hand, present tense verb, is with me on the table. Judas was there. He didn't leave early. Jesus' statement to Judas was, you're going to betray me. The Son of Man goes. I go. Jesus goes voluntarily. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. As soon as he says that, he takes some bread. Judas is sitting right there. And he breaks it no doubt going around the room looking at each disciple one by one, saying, this is my body which I am giving for you, coming perhaps last of all to Judas, breaking it and handing it over. They go around, they all take it. He has on multiple occasions said that he would be crucified and raised on the third day. He has made the statement to his disciples, go and get this particular room because my time is at hand. He has now made a statement to Judas which is going to force Judas's hand and make Judas go early to fetch the guards to come and have Jesus arrested. He is in total control. He is in total authority of the situation and he is looking right eyeball to eyeball with the one who is to betray him and he is saying, I do this for you. In the same way he takes the cup he says, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is for you. And here is the question. As we come face to face with this most pivotal moment, will we side 
with those who would use Jesus and abuse him and do away with him for their own selfish purposes? Or will we repent of our utilitarian, mercenary ways in which we just use people for our own ends? And will we side with Christ who gives of himself voluntarily for the blessing of all those around him? That's the question that is presented in communion. It's just a symbol, but it's not just a symbol. It is symbolic, but it's a confrontation that happens every time we partake of it. All of us find ourselves, every time we participate in communion, in the upper room face to face with Christ. Are we using people like Judas? Or are we being transformed by the grace of Christ to love people, to tell them the truth, and to point out that the victory was ultimately won by Christ on the cross? You notice what he says here. Verse 27, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. Jesus' statement says, you need to do this. He goes voluntarily. No one forces him to go. Though he is betrayed, though the Pharisees do seize him, though the chief priests do put him through a kangaroo court, a mock trial in which no wrong can be found, though the world will seek to crucify Christ, Jesus is in total control, and he gives himself voluntarily. He goes to the cross of his own free will. And he says, if you want to have salvation, you have to receive what he has done for you on the cross. There are lots of things we can do to kind of, you know, relax the muscles in our back. There are lots of different things we can do to take the stress off of our day-to-day lives. There are lots of things we can do to get away from the difficulty of our present circumstances. But none of that changes anything. You may feel a sense of guilt or conviction over the wrongs that you've committed in your life, seeking to escape that guilt. You may turn to things like marijuana or going on elaborate extended vacations or transcendental meditation. But none of that changes reality. You can escape the stress in the moment, but you will never escape the final judgment. Jesus' commandment today to you and to me is that we would turn to him knowing that our guilt puts him on the cross. Nevertheless, he goes there freely for us to save us. I bet you're all wondering what was the end result of that conversation. A Baptist, a Buddhist, and a hippie are sitting on an airplane. I wish I could tell you that I preached like Billy Graham 
and they got saved, and there was like this revival that broke out on the airplane, but no, that didn't happen. I wish I could tell you that it was even a pleasant conversation where we went back and forth, and I said, you guys are wrong, and you're deceiving yourselves from the ultimate reality that you will all face, and that they were like, you're right, we should turn to Jesus, this is a great idea. They didn't say that either. All I can say to you about what happened that day was that I was deathly terrified of talking about ultimate salvation in terms of this is just something I believe, this is what's true for me. I was afraid of talking about it as though it was a matter of personal preference, like I like the color blue or I prefer vanilla ice cream. By God's grace, I said, I turn to communion. I give myself to the church. I ultimately give myself to Jesus Christ. And I come to him day by day, week by week, for his salvation. And I was true to say to them that if you do not also participate in the receiving of God's grace by faith through what Jesus did on the cross, you won't make it. That's as pointed as I got. To which they then responded exactly as you would expect them to. I'm glad that you found what works for you. Church, this is spiritual warfare, what's happening in communion. And when we give ourselves to communion, when we give ourselves to coming together as a church body, when we give ourselves to reminding each other time and again that it is Jesus that died on the cross for our sins, we're making a statement and it calls for a final verdict. It is not a matter of personal preference. The only question that matters is will you receive Jesus Christ? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you We thank you for what you have done for us by sending your son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, as we remind ourselves time and again of this truth that we are to choose you, I pray, God, that your communion would have its effect in our lives, that we would be shaped by it, that we would be molded by it, that it would transform us, that it would be a a means that you use to bring about rejuvenation and renewal. Lord, as you say in your word, every time we partake of this communion, we proclaim your death until you return. Ultimately, this is a statement that calls for a final decision. This is a statement that we make as a church that calls for a verdict to be reached, a conclusion to be had. We pray, God, that we would do it faithfully, that we would lift high the name of your Son, and that the world would be forced to choose one way or another. Lord, if there are any here today who think that they don't have to gather together with your people, that they don't have to give themselves to the celebration of communion, that they don't have to give themselves, Lord, to the receiving of your grace ultimately in their life, pray, God, that you change their mind. I pray, Lord, that you'd open their eyes. And we pray, Lord, that they would receive your son by faith. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.